So in 2019, and I think I mentioned this in a sermon about a month ago or so, I went on a trip with two of my children to Paris. And while we were there in Paris, we really, the, the bulk of our time was just walking around and just looking at all the sites. I didn't realize you should get tickets for things beforehand. And so we just got to see a lot, okay, um, from an architectural perspective, but it was still beautiful. And one of the things that I wanted to see when I was there um, was actually at the end of probably the most popular street in, in Paris. And this street has all the big, big brand stores. And so we're walking down like nothing, nothing we could ever afford. Um, and a little intimidated when the doors are locked and they have the security guard between door and door, but they'll let you in anyway, you know. We were able to afford the macaroons on that road. So we got our priorities straight and then we kept walking. And at the end of that road is this, the Arc de Triomphe. Now, it may not look like it in that picture, but that is a long road to get there. There's a lot of shops behind all those trees. And then you have that arc. Now we made it to the end of the road, and then at the end of that road, there's this big circular road with, I mean, they don't have lanes on the road. I don't know how people drive in this, but it was probably what I would say six lanes of traffic, and somehow me and my boys braved through that. There was probably a crosswalk somewhere, but we didn't see it, so we just ran, okay? And cars honked at us, but we lived to tell the tale. And then we got across, made it there, and then I saw at the base around it a fence and a ticket booth. And I'm like, really? Like, even this thing we got to have a ticket for? This, this arc that has 284 steps to get to the top, steep steps, I've heard. <laughs> I wasn't in it. But this ark that was commissioned by Napoleon took 30 years to build, and he never even saw the completion of it. This ark that was to commemorate all who fought and died in the French Revolutionary War and the Napoleonic Wars. This ark has become a tourist attraction. Just get a ticket, and you can enjoy it. And I get it. I get it. But for some reason, that also just kind of cheapens it a little to me. Something that was to communicate major victories has now become a relic of days gone by. And that triumphal arch there was built to communicate what ancient arches used to communicate. The ancient arches were used by warriors and kings to walk through when they were victorious in battle. It communicated to the city or even to the nation that the king has won. The kingdom has won. But as I think about arches in the past, whether it's in Paris or in the ancient world, really all of those arches are just relics. What do they communicate now? Are there kings still alive? 
No. Do they communicate anything that, 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 that says, th- any, anything in the present time? I mean, maybe. But do those arches guarantee anything for the future? Absolutely not. So just get your ticket and you can imagine days gone by and appreciate the beauty of past eras. Now, I bring this up because I I think about Palm Sunday and I think about Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And was that entrance into the city just like an ancient relic, like these? I mean, given that Jesus was crucified within just a few days from this, why do we and many other churches throughout the ages celebrate Palm Sunday? Was it really a triumphal march? If by Thursday, people are betraying him and people are taking him to trial. I mean, I think it'd be fairly accurate to say that many Palm Sunday sermons, at some point, the preacher talks about how at least some, if not many of the people in this crowd who are waving palm branches saying Hosanna might have at least been in the crowd saying crucify a few days later. So, so why do we celebrate this day? Why, why do our Bibles even say triumphal entry? Is this really a triumph? Do you see why I'm asking the questions? Even if all the people were genuinely worshiping Jesus, what does Jesus' entrance 2,000 years ago have to do with us today? And does Jesus' entrance 2,000 years ago not only speak to today, but does it speak to the future? If his entrance is just like the Arc de Triomphe, then we can just say on this Sunday, ticket please, and gaze at the relic of days gone by. But I firmly believe that there's rejoicing to be had precisely because Jesus' entrance into the city is so unique and different from every other entrance, every other triumphal march. Jesus's is unique because his victory isn't simply a military victory. His victory is the victory of the ages, bringing bringing rescue to rebels so that rebels can be forgiven and set free and eternally loved by God. It's a different kind of victory. So maybe for some of us or many of us here today, we need to rethink Palm Sunday. We need to savor the greatness of our Savior so that we might be able to worship God more fully and truly. So we're going to approach a text, a specific text today, Matthew 21. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Matthew 21. We're going to read the first 11 verses together. I don't have it on the slides behind me. Matthew 21. Verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, when Jesus sent, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. 
If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There is great joy to be had on Palm Sunday. Not a minimal temporal joy like many people have in other triumphal marches, but eternal joy to be found. And in this text, what I want to bring out in this message today is that the triumphal entry speaks to Jesus' eternal kingship and summons every person. And when I say every person, I'm not saying every, just every person here. I'm saying the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem summons every single human being who has ever existed to repentance. So we're going to look first at this reality that the triumphal entry speaks to Jesus' eternal kingship. I mean, this story is, has very interesting scenarios from Jesus' perspective in it. Jesus is in complete command of every situation here. He's commanding his disciples. He's telling his disciples what is going to happen. In addition, he's calling the disciples to speak authoritatively on his behalf to some other people in some other town who have donkey and a colt. And they're to tell those people that the Lord needs the donkey. And then Jesus says the people are going to give you this donkey and this colt. Now, the reason why I find this so fascinating here is because Jesus is revealing his authority and also his absolute intention to follow through on God's salvation plan. Do you see that? I think of Jesus' words in John 10 when he says, no one takes it, his life. No one takes his life from him. And Jesus says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The triune God orchestrated this plan in eternity past, and Jesus lives out this plan that's leading to his own death. He's in complete control. How awesome to know that Jesus didn't merely die, but he willingly laid down his life at the hands of people. Isn't that awe-inspiring? What a glorious king that he would willfully, deliberately choose to lay down his life and to say, that's triumph. I'll show you what triumph is. Behold our king. Behold the king. 
But, but where in the text does it say that he's a king? I mean, obviously in verse 5, we see the word king, behold your king, the quotation. But we're given hints that we're supposed to understand Jesus as king earlier in this story. The very fact that Jesus says he is the Lord, the Lord has need of them. Uh, that, that idea is that Jesus is, is ultimately, he's the owner of those donkeys. He's the Lord, he's the master. And so the Lord has need of them, so give them to Jesus. But then we also see that the cult itself reveals Jesus' authority as king. Some people, they have taken this passage and they've said that, that writing on the cult is really a representation of Jesus' utter humility. And I, I believe that Jesus was humble in the midst of all of this. However, I don't know if the cult precisely is speaking to humility as much as to kingship. Because in 1 Kings, we read David's word regarding Solomon. And it was mentioned earlier in that video at the beginning of the service. But in 1 Kings, David is speaking of his son, Solomon. And he says, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. There's similarity here that's taking place. Solomon was the son of David, correct? Right? But Jesus is the son of David that Solomon is pointing to. It's interesting the connections between Solomon becoming king where the religious leaders, they, they were affirming a different son. The military was affirming a different son. And David says, no, Solomon, and have him ride on a mule. And what's taking place in the city of Jerusalem at this time as well? The religious leaders, no, it's not Jesus. The military force of Rome, no, 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 he's not king. And Jesus enters on a donkey. He's revealing he is king. He's declaring to Jerusalem that the, the king of peace is coming into the city. The third reason that this entrance reveals his kingship and authority as well is because his entrance fulfills prophecy in Zechariah 9. I want you to think about Matthew's perspective in writing his whole letter and his whole narrative is to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills the prophecy of Scripture. The prophecies that have been spoken of the Messiah centuries before are fulfilled in Jesus. And so here we even have Jesus riding on a colt as a prophetic fulfillment. He's the king. He's come. He's entering Jerusalem. And then even the donkey's age represents Jesus' rule and authority. I've read, I don't, and I've, I've, I think I've seen videos on this too, but I've read that colts can be stubborn, and they can even be stubborn, uh, more stubborn than adults. They need to be broken into submission. And isn't it interesting that Jesus is riding on a colt? Now, they say they put the clothes on the, the donkey, the mother, and it's good that the mother's there, 
right? But they put, they put some stuff on the mother and on the colt, and then Jesus sits on the clothes on the colt. It's amazing that the colt is moving. And think of the crowd that's around. If colts are stubborn, they're not going to move. They're not going to budge in that kind of environment. And yet this cult is moving. And so I love how one man, D.A. Carson, says this. In the midst then of this excited crowd, an unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature. Thus the event points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. The king of peace. The king of peace is entering into the city. Behold Behold, your God is coming. Your king is coming into Jerusalem. The one who left heaven's glories into the brokenness of this world is entering into the city of Jerusalem. And he's coming triumphantly to show the grace and love of God to bring eternal triumph. He's the king. And this king is summoning every person to repentance. In this whole scenario, it does seem as though people got at least some of the intentions of the entrance on the donkey. I mean, there's excitement that you can read from the pages. In preparing Jesus for the ride, the disciples, again, lay their own clothes on this. The disciples are obeying. They're showing homage to Jesus. We know that the disciples were anticipating this moment. Like, what is he going to do next? This is going to be great. The people praise him by taking their clothes, putting them them on the road, cutting branches from trees, spreading them across the road, and as a sign that they recognize Jesus as king. And this this all, by the way, has, has a heritage in Jewish practice, too. In 2 Kings 9, King Jehu tells his friends that he's going to be king. And when we hear of that, it says, Then each man hastened to take his garment and to put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. So to to put these things on the road signifies these people know. So we have this similar response. They're showing homage to Jesus, but they're doing so much more. As Jesus comes into the city, they quote from Psalm 118, which we have been reading in the service. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, Hosanna means, oh, save. Oh, save. And then it ends up becoming a phrase simply of praise to God. They're looking to him. They're recognizing he's the Messiah. They're recognizing he's the Savior. They need to be recognized, or they need to be rescued. They're not just saying, we know you're from the Davidic line. They're, they're using the Messianic title. You're the son of David to save. They confess this. And then even when other people in the city are saying, who is this? Look at their response. This is the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. They know who he is. And they're saying, oh, save. They're asking for salvation. Now, it's the great exuberance and the confession of the people at this triumphal entry that's caused many people to ask questions and wonder, how can the people be so joyous on this day, on Sunday, And by Thursday, it seems it's like completely opposite. Well, first, I'm not 
I'm not convinced that everybody in this crowd was a part of the crucify him crowd. Even as we saw in the video, the city has grown six times its size. And as I was thinking about that, I'm like, population of Holland, what happens during tulip time, right? So if we said people were acting this way in one part of the city of Holland and people were acting this way in another part of the city of Holland, we don't assume all these people were here. However, that being said, I think Matthew is writing in such a way to get us to understand this tension because even Jesus' disciples, his own disciples, by Thursday were running from him, all but John, right? And so we should ask this question. How can that be the case? But doesn't, doesn't that just show how much we as humans need a savior? Doesn't that just show why Jesus has come to this earth? We're the rebels. We're the ones in need of him. We're the fickle who worship God in one breath and deny him in the next. So when we say, how can this be a triumphal entry when people are going to fall away within a week's time? We say it's triumphal because Jesus is going to rescue people from that tendency, from that tenacity of their own self-exaltation. He's going to rescue people from this. I think Matthew is doing something else in the telling of this story. Many of you were here when we actually went through the whole book of Matthew. And one of the ideas that Matthew continues to emphasize in his writing is how often people are amazed at Jesus. But amazement isn't, it isn't all Jesus wants. The quotation from one of the commentators on the book of Matthew says, Jesus was not looking for amazement and adoration, but for repentance. Now, I want to qualify that. I would say Jesus was not looking only, because, because part of worship is amazement and adoration, right? If you're not amazed and admiring Jesus, you're missing things. But that's not it. Because there are plenty of stories in the book of Matthew where people are amazed. You can probably think of them where Jesus heals people and then tells them what to do. And like only two out of the majority follow Jesus. People are amazed with him. But they don't, they don't really turn to him. They don't, they don't seek him. There's a lot of amazement here in this entrance and admiration, but the question is whether or not people have actually turned to Jesus, recognizing their need, recognizing the depths of which Jesus can rescue them. Matthew indicates here in the narrative, these people need saving, but what kind of saving? I mean, they say, save me, or save, oh, save. But what do they mean by the word save? Does the word save always mean rescue me from my sins and reconcile me to you? No. Now, I remember years ago, my sister-in-law went to Ireland and she visited these cliffs. And that freaks me out. 
If you've ever seen The Princess Bride, that's those cliffs. It really is, okay? And my, uh, my sister-in-law was there. She went to the cliffs. And, and it's like, oh, okay. I don't like heights like that. I'm, I'm fine in an airplane. I'm fine being totally enclosed. Then she told me there's no fence. Like There's no fences there. That, I can literally feel my legs start to weaken at the thought. Anybody else feel that way with heights like that? Oh, my goodness. Now, let's just, let's just say that I was foolish enough to go and visit. You know, that's one thing. I'd be standing hundreds of feet away, okay? But, but let's say, let's say I was even dumb enough to walk all the way to the edge. And then I know what's going to happen. I'm going to fall. Right? That's because that's my fear. My fears are real. All right? That's what we're always taught, right? Fears are real. Okay, no. Anyway, but let's just say I fall and I'm hanging on and I go, ah, save me. I hope none of my friends say, he is calling out to Jesus to justify him. <laughs> well, that's good because he's about to die, you know? I hope that all my friends would know that I am saying, Get me, pick me up, grab my hands, pull me. Save does not mean, oh Lord, save me from my sins. There are many contexts we can use the word save, and it doesn't mean save me from my sins. Do we get that? And so I think we have to ask the question, what are the people here saying when they're saying, oh, save? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I have questions, their intentions. And the reason why I question at least some or maybe many in this crowd is because this Psalm 18 that was quoted when Jesus enters into the city was actually quoted verbatim a hundred years before with a man by the name of uh, Jonathan Maccabeus. If you've heard of the book of Maccabees and you know of, of Hanukkah, that's all about what happened 100 years before. And the people said of him when he entered the city, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name. They were looking to him like he's the Messiah. Well, it didn't work out. Now we have the next one. I think contextually, people reading Matthew, it's like we've made the mistake before. Uh, and, and Maccabeus, he, he rescued them uh, he brought a, a stronghold from Jerusalem back to the Israelites from uh, Syria and Syria's power. And so they were looking for governmental rescue, national rescue. The, the second reason why I question the intentions as well is because of the palm branches themselves. One of my study Bibles says this, branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. Now clearly God has made promises to Israel a nation. So I don't think that national saving is sinful, but I think this at least can communicate that, that some or many simply wanted political saving. They confess Jesus is king, but they only want him to rescue them maybe from their enemies, their physical enemies. Yeah, they wanted peace. Jesus comes on a colt. Hmm. But what kind of peace are they looking for? Are they looking for a peace that actually reaches deep down into the soul? That there's a peace with God because they're the enemies of God? Or are they looking for 
peace so that they have no other human enemies and that the city of Jerusalem itself will be raised up. I can't help but wonder if many of them really don't want Jesus. They want what they think Jesus can give them. And, and that's a consistent theme in the book of Matthew. All too often, people are asking God to save them from so many things, but they don't really want God. Doesn't that happen in our day too? Doesn't it? Doesn't it even happen in your own heart? Where you, you want God to save you from this, this, and this. But the question is, is do you want God in the end? Do you want God? Is he enough? Is he everything? I love how Jesus speaks of himself where he says, this is eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing, communing with God. He's eternal life. Eternal life is not just streets of gold and a crystal sea. I'll tell you what, if God isn't there, it doesn't matter. And if you're a believer, you know that to be true. Amen? I don't want it if God's not there. Because Jesus is life. So I have a question for you. You who are here and sitting and listening and thinking about Palm Sunday and thinking about saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. You are the God who saves us from what? For what? What is the good news to you? There are so many different renditions of the gospel to people. There is a, there is a have your best life now kind of gospel. There is a get out of hell free gospel. There is a therapeutic gospel, a moralistic gospel, a social justice gospel, a just be yourself gospel, an Oprah gospel a Republican gospel, a Democratic gospel. There's all different kinds of gospels. And they get in the way of Jesus. Who do you want? You need him. And you even need him to work in your heart so that you'd want him. But Jesus enters into this city to say, he, he is the king, not just to give you things, but to give you himself to give you God, to know him. So, so a question for you, do you want God or do you just want his benefits? At least in part, I think that this story of the triumphal entry causes us to ask the question about our own hearts. Because I don't think Jesus was, just, was coming in to say, let's get rid of the Romans. But again, that Jesus came to grant a greater, more pervasive salvation from the tyranny of our own sinfulness. And that is triumph. We recognize that we have committed treason. We have taken God's gifts and tried to serve them more than serving him. We have taken creation. We have said, mine. And we have destroyed things that God has created the worst consequence every human being experiences is not being reconciled with God. And I say that's the worst because we were made for him. 
And Jesus came and entered in to remove, to remove the distance and to bring us together. And we know what happened just a few days from his entrance. He was tried. He was rejected by people. A criminal was set free so that Jesus could then go on his cross. But it was all according to plan. Jesus has the power to lay down his own life. Before going to the cross, he was beaten, tortured, and then placed on the cross and experienced the torments of crucifixion death till eventually, because of his utter weakness and inability, he died sooner than the others because of his beatings and scourging. And he died because he suffocated. The God who gives life and breath no longer had life and breath. But the greatest, the greatest torment that Jesus endured, the greatest terror is something that no other person in the crucifixion ever endured. And that was Jesus took the just punishment that sinners deserved on himself. No other human being has experienced it. On the cross, God the Son said he'd take the pain of forgiveness and reconciliation on himself. He'd pay on that cross. He's the once-for-all sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I just want you to think about that being this, this Passover week and the population of Jerusalem has expanded six times its size. There are, there, there are estimates that during just that week, just that week, 260,000 lambs were sacrificed just that week. That's a lot of death. That's a lot of blood. Why did they do it? It was always a reminder, your sin brings death and you need something pure to bring forgiveness to you. But they also knew that's not going to bring forgiveness. We're looking to the Messiah to bring us forgiveness. And what does Jesus do? He dies, he bleeds on the cross and he takes the punishment our sins deserve so that there's no need for thousands upon thousands and hundreds of thousands of animals to be sacrificed anymore. Instead, what we read in Romans, God put Jesus forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Propitiation. That word means Wrath appeaser, the satisfier of wrath. Jesus satisfied it when he died. Not just for one person. I know I've said this in the past, but we need to hear it again and again and again and again and again. That, that Jesus took an eternity's worth of wrath, not just for one, but for myriads upon myriads upon myriads of sinners, including you and me, brothers and sisters. Nobody has experienced that. Nobody could, except for Jesus. And he took it in himself. 
and our triune God was satisfied. Jesus satisfied so that even on the cross, he could say, why have you forsaken me? And then say, it is finished. He did it. He did it. And for anyone who trusts in Christ, we find a life and salvation that is complete. We're forgiven and reconciled. We now have real life to the fullest because that's what Jesus says. I came to give life and life to the full. It's in these types of thoughts that we should rejoice at Palm Sunday because Jesus's triumphal entry is different than every single one in the past. More glorious than any other one. The triumphal entry speaks to Jesus' eternal kingship and summons everyone to repentance. So what about you? Do you trust him? Trust, trust him for, for genuine salvation? Or do you treat Jesus like the Arc de Triomphe, a relic of days gone by? Are you turning to him or, do, or, or just seeing him from a distance, maybe past a fence, if you will? Do you know that his entrance 2,000 years ago has significance then, today, and in the future? Because someday he's coming again to bring a new heaven and a new earth and no more sin but all glory? And do you know that Jesus doesn't just want you to be in awe of him? He wants you. He wants you. That's what repentance is. It's turning from that and saying, I, I'm not giving myself to that anymore. God, I need you. That's what God wants. He wants to take rebels and to transform them into children. No other king of any other kingdom could do that or would do that. But Jesus has. Do you trust him? So hear these words as we conclude our time together. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.